Last week, I addressed a lot of the scriptures that are used to teach that God is controlling and manipulating everything that's happening on the earth. And I was trying to, you know, most of the time when, when uh, a preacher gets up and he teaches something, he's usually building a case for what he believes. Last week, I didn't do that. Instead, I tried to tear down a case for something that I don't believe. And so I gave you scripture after scripture after scripture that's used to present this sort of omni-controlling presentation of God. And I went one by one and showed how each one of those passages are grossly misrepresenting God because they're being taken, for the most part, out of context. So we mentioned one passage in particular that, um, you know, uh, what was the Isaiah one where he's like, uh, my ways are not your ways. Now, most of us, when you hear that passage, in what context do people use that passage to comfort you? When you're going through a difficult time, right? And what's the implied message? Yeah, yeah, hey, God's put you in this situation. You know, yeah, you would never choose this situation for yourself, but God has chosen you for this situation, and, and his ways are unfathomable. And I was actually trying to show you that that's not what that passage is meant to teach at all. And when it says that his ways are not our ways, uh, if you look at the verses right before that, it's actually his ways being his mercy and his compassion and his faithfulness to an unfaithful, rebellious people. He was speaking specifically of Israel and how even now after she's cheated on him multiple times, he's still willing to forgive Israel. In other words, his ways are not our ways. He's far more forgiving than we are. Um, my whole point in that message is to tell you that God is better than you think he is. Um, and and that this, this idea that all the tragedy and, and the, the terrible things that we're going through, that somehow he orchestrated those things on any level at all, is a completely wrong idea. Um, this world is the way it is because of all kinds of reasons, uh, reasons that are cosmic, reasons that are individual, um, and just evil in the world in general. Uh, but, but he is not the one orchestrating evil. If anything, he's the one redeeming it. And so I, I told you that this week I wanted to tackle uh, what I think is probably one of the most controversial passages of Scripture, which I, I realize after getting into this already that I've bitten off way more than I can chew. So you're going to have to bear with me tonight as I try to dissect uh, Romans 8 and 9. Now, as I said this last week, I'm going to say it again this week. This is not your feel-good preaching sermon, okay? I am going to teach you tonight. That means we're going to go line by line. We're going to dive into the scriptures. It's going to be hard, but it's going to be good. Now, my... <laughs> My hope is that in the midst of that, I can be entertaining enough to keep you engaged. <laughs> and I just, I recognize, like, in, like on the very front side of that, how impossible the task is in front of me. Uh, like I said, this is the most controversial passage. It really is. You go through Romans 8 and 9, most of us, we read that passage, and we try to just read it as fast as we can to get on the other side of it, where things start to make sense again. Uh, because it is confusing, and it is hard. Uh, and it does present some very uh, confusing aspects of God. Now, how many of you are familiar with the term dissonance? Anybody know what dissonance is? So when, uh, when a 
piano player or a guitarist, when they, wait, where's one of our guitarists? Who was playing earlier? Are you playing guitar? Who's playing guitar? Get up there for me. Just do me a favor. I need, this is, I didn't, you didn't plan this. I didn't plan this. I don't even know what I'm doing right now. This is totally out of left field here. Get on the guitar for me. I want, I want to show them uh, how a musician makes a song. So, uh, yeah, it's a good thing I actually play guitar. I know a little bit about this, just a little bit. So when a, when a guitar player plays a song, he's going to take usually three to four fingers and, and place them on different parts of the fretboard to, to, take, to make individual notes come together to create what's called a chord. Do that for me. Just play it like an E. Right, that's a chord. We, we use the E chord in almost every Christian song there is. Christian music, incredibly simplistic. Sometimes we'll take that chord, mix it up with a few other chords, and now you have a song. Do that for me, just a few chords, one right after the next. See how they can kind of go together? All right. Now... You guys are clapping way more than you need to for this. There's nothing, yeah, I mean, nothing insanely talented about this, right? Not yet. Uh, so that's what we call chords that are in harmony and notes that harmonize together to create a chord. Now, dissonance is what happens when you bring notes together that don't make sense together. They don't harmonize. They don't fit. Play something that's dissonant for me. How many of you would agree that something sounds off? Now play a few dissonant chords. It actually sounded a little bit cool, but... Come on, man. He can't have it. He's just too good. Even when he's trying to do bad, he's doing good. Uh, I think you get my point. Now, this is a great illustration because it shows us what happens oftentimes when we read the scriptures and they don't make sense to us. We see one aspect of God and we're like, yeah, that's the God I know. That's the God I've experienced. And then you see something else and then you're going, but that doesn't make sense. That didn't seem to jive. Like, like when, when I, I mentioned last week that uh, passage out of Exodus 4, when it says, it is God who makes a man mute and deaf and blind, Right? And I told you guys, never build a theology off a random Old Testament verse that the New Testament clearly contradicts. Like, as if God and Jesus are working against each other. Jesus is out there healing the blind. God is out there causing people to be blind. Doesn't make sense, doesn't it? That's called dissonance. Two things that don't fit together, they create an awkward sound. And this happens with our competing views of God. Uh, On one one hand, we're taught by this world that God is, is manipulating and controlling everything, that every bad thing you go through, he caused to teach you some sort of lesson, lesson you never really know what it is, but just some lesson. And, and then this idea that, that God is actually at work in the midst of all the things that are happening to make good out of those situations. Um, and, and I gave you a great illustration of like this. Uh, you're done. Sorry. Thank you so much. Yeah. Fantastic. So. I keep you up there. You're like, oh, my gosh, I'm sweating all this attention. Um, so 
I mentioned that, um, what was it? The Exodus passage. What did I just say? I lost my train of thought. Huh? Yeah. Oh, now I remember. Um, we're, we're already in our culture pre-programmed to think that the bad stuff that, that is happening in our lives is because of God. We really are, which is, is so ironic because it could not be more f- like furthest from the truth. Um, when you have a, a hailstorm come through and tear up your car and your insurance, you, you file it on your insurance, what do they file it as a claim under? Acts of God. Do you see what I mean? Like in our Western world, we're pre-programmed to think that the bad things that are happening in our life are caused by God. And so I, I spent, I mean, I went through great length to show you that that's not what it says in the scriptures, or at least the, the passages that we think say that, they don't actually say that. Well, this week, I, I want to deal with a huge, confusing passage, which I've mentioned already, Romans 8 and 9. Um, before I do that, I have to give you some context before we just jump right in, because we're going to start in the very middle of a book, and there's like seven and a half to eight chapters already that, that are already there that we have to sort of summarize, so that's, that's a feat in and of itself. Um, and what we're dealing with just prior to Romans 8, we're going to start in Romans 8, 28, but just prior to that, let me just fill, you, fill in the gap here. Uh, Paul is dealing or explaining to, to the Roman church how sin has had dominion over mankind. And, and by dominion, I mean it rules over mankind. Mankind is ruled by its passions for sin. And that God, he, he chose one particular people group to show the world what it, was lo- what it looked like when sin wasn't ruling over a particular people group, but instead God was. Any of you know why God chose Israel out of all the other nations? Was it something special about Israel? No, nothing special. It just had to do with God and his choice and his ability, his ability to work something amazing out of a pagan people group. When you think about Abram and where he was called from, he was, uh, and at that time, I think they were worshiping the moon god. It's an ancient Acadia. He gets called out from the land where they worship the moon god. He gets called into a new territory, and God basically says, I'm going to create a nation out of your offspring. And this nation is going to show the whole world what it looks like when I'm ruling again instead of sin and instead of the enemy. So we're told that Israel would become a light for the entire world. What does a light do? It shines, right? It's supposed to be a city set on a hill. Is an example, something that we can all look at and go, that's why God. So Israel is chosen for this specific purpose. Um, and in the midst of all of that, God is going to deal with sin. And so next thing you know, you have this, the law come in. And, and, and Paul is explaining, here's what the law was. The law was never going to give you righteousness. Matter of fact, the law wasn't actually even to make you a better person. The law was to help you see that you really are under the dominion of sin. For instance, how many of us, and I mean, you, this happens now, you have been doing something your whole life, suddenly someone shows you how that thing is actually very wrong, and you find yourself going, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Anybody? Anybody experience that later on? 
I mean, like, you, you've been buying a certain product. Someone tells you, well, do you know that that product was made by, by little, you know, slave children for less than a penny? And you're going, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that. And you're like, I'm not buying that product anymore. I mean, that's what happens to us is we discover things overall. Well, that's what the law was. It was a tutor to help you see that you really were under the dominion of sin. In other words, sin ruled over you. Now, this, the law was never going to set you free from it. That's why Jesus came. And when he came, he, he literally laid his life down as a sacrifice for sin and then was raised from the dead with the promise of this, that anybody who would believe upon him would be raised from the dead and that they would be set free from the dominion of sin. And, and, and it's a two-part thing here. It's like two sides of the same coin. There's this dying to the self, that means we're dying to the sin, and then being given the spirit which raises us into life. Now, how many of you know that trying not to sin doesn't work? Anybody just tried not to sin? How, how'd it work for you? I mean, and I'm telling you, us preachers, we're the worst. We teach you all of these different methods to be free from your sin, and most people leave in the same amount of sin that they came in with. I mean, if, I, I just don't get the point of this. Why preach something if it doesn't work? Um, here's the thing. You're never going to get better by trying to be better. It doesn't work. See, knowing what you need to do and being able to do it are two totally different things. And, and for that, here, here is the only thing I know. Paul is laying out this case that dominion from sin, if you want to be set free from the dominion of sin, it means you have to identify with Christ's death. And that means you yourself have to go through this death of your own. Um, for me, I think of some of the things in my life that, that I would, that to me are, are idols, things that I've worshipped and wanted and, and strived to obtain. And it was only when I finally said, I give up. I give up trying to get those things. I give up trying to get free from this sin. I give up. It is in that place where I can finally find life. It's a death to whatever that thing is. Now, that thing is different for all of us. That's why, like, when, when it comes to a person preaching a sermon about getting free from sin, it's really hard to do because I can't speak in specifics because for all of us, it's so different. Um, for me, you know, one of the, the idols in my life was, was uh, relationships and marriage. I thought if I could just get married, then I'd have a good life. And you know what happened is every relationship I got into, I sabotaged. I destroyed that thing. And my quickest way to freedom from that thing, from being out from under its dominion, was to let that desire die. But it's in that place where the Spirit can come. And so uh, there is a, a, and I would say that's true of any sin in your life. At some point, here's what has to happen, is you have to look at that sin and go, I don't want this. This thing is never going to fulfill. It's never going to fulfill the life it promises to give me. And you just literally have to let it die. And I mean that in every aspect. Um, what sets us free from the passions of this world is death. I, this sounds so crazy, but I, I, and I'm not doing the best job of explaining it. Um, Paul would say this in, in a different letter. He would say... Uh, Live by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. It's two sides of the same coin. 
On one side, you have to die to this world and the passions of this world. Everything this world claims to give you, you need to die to its desires and its passions. And then on the flip side, you have to have the Spirit of God to live a new life. The Spirit of God empowers us, but by living a Spirit-filled life, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And I've found this to be true in my life. When I've uh, submitted myself to walking in friendship with the Spirit, I find that there really is no desire for sin. And it's not me trying not to sin. It's me just walking with the Spirit. Do you see the distinction? It's, it's really nuanced, and I'm not the best at explaining it. And, and honestly, that's not the intention of my sermon. I'm just trying to give you the backdrop. So here in the midst of this, um, Paul is, is tackling this question about who's obtaining righteousness. Because the Jewish people at this time, they had this underlying belief that because of their ethnicity, because they were ethnically Jewish, that means that they would receive righteousness. And they would continue to be God's chosen people. So that was their first misconception. The other was that by their works of the law, by fulfilling the law, they would obtain righteousness. And Paul is saying, guess what? Both of those things have never been true. You're trying to fulfill the law, never obtained you righteousness. The law was actually to show you that you were under the dominion of sin. That you could never attain righteousness by trying to be good. The other thing, your ethnicity has nothing to do with it. It's like people saying today, well, um, my father was a doctor, so that means I'm a doctor. Does it work that way? It doesn't work that way. Just because your um, father is a Christian doesn't guarantee that you're a Christian. So here's, the, here's the, the, the backdrop. When Paul is getting into Romans 8 and 9, he's talking about this thing because he's writing to both Jewish people and Gentiles, that means non-Jews, and he's talking to the Gentiles who feel like God has disappointed them because suddenly righteousness is being given over to all these people who are not Jewish. And it's in this place that Paul is addressing, is God really faithful? Now, misconceptions we bring into this passage is that God is talking about an individual's salvation. And this doesn't have to do with a single person's salvation. It has to do with a vocation of an entire nation. Do I need to say that again? Those words rhymed. I did not plan that. Uh, This is not about an individual's salvation. It is about the vocation or calling of an entire nation. Catch this? All right. Let's start off in Romans 8, 28. This will play into everything that we talked about last week too, right off the bat. It says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Stop here, don't don't move on yet. Right off the bat, for we know that God causes all things. Now, I remember when I was talking to, to my friend who thought God is controlling everything. He says, look right here. It says, God causes all things. I'm like, wait, is that what that passage says? That everything that happens, God is causing. It says he causes all things. Do you see how he's literally taking a section of that scripture and divorcing it from the rest of the words around it? calls all things to work together. Now, does that mean he's causing all things or 
that everything that happens, he's causing those things to work for good. The distinction is subtle, but it has huge implications. He causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. Is this for everybody? For those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, here's what I take this to mean. God is incredibly redemptive. Take the most painful experience in your life. When I say that, many of you already have something in mind. And what if I told you that there's good news about that pain? Not an ounce or drip of your pain will be wasted. That God can work something so amazingly good out of every ounce of pain that you've experienced that one might even be deceived into thinking that he caused that pain to begin with. Hear me on that. You would be deceived to think so. But you can see why that would be possible. Do I need to say that again? I probably lost you on this. Like, I think of a relationship that I had, that I, a girl I thought I was going to marry. And I remember the heartbreak when that relationship just blew up. And I, I, afterwards, I'm in the throes of the pain of that experience. Now, fast forward, years later, I'm married, I have two kids, I love my wife. Like, I, the thought of not doing life with my wife is probably one of the worst thoughts. Um, and I'm so thankful that I didn't marry that other girl. <laughs> you see, God has taken the pain I've experienced and he's worked it so well that I'm looking at him going, oh, thank you that we broke up. But let's not be mistaken, God didn't cause that breakup. But you see how I could be deceived into thinking that? Because I'm so thankful for how much good has come from it. And that's what he can do with everything. And I'm telling you this, the greatest comfort I know is that none of our pain gets wasted. None of it. That if you will give your pain to God, he can work something out of it that is so much better than you could have ever created on your own. That's what this purpose is, or this, this verse is teaching you. That God can work good out of any terrible thing that's happened. Just look at the fall of man. Next verse. This is for those whom he foreknew. Now this is the famous predestination passage. I know, we're totally going there tonight. How many, are y'all okay with that? We're going into predestination, this is it. For those whom God, whom he foreknew. Now, I'm going to argue that that word foreknow is a Semitic term. It's used in, uh, in the garden where it says Adam knew Eve. Do you know what it means when it says Adam knew Eve? It means he was intimate. That's the kind of knowing we're talking about. It's, it's an intimate loving of. So, what kind of knowing does God have? Well, it's a, a, a group that he foreknew or an individual. Now, that's the big question. Many people who walk away saying God is predetermining everything happens, they're reading this passage as though it's talking about an individual's salvation. And I'm asking you the question, are we talking about an individual or are we talking about a group? And that's going to alter how you interpret this passage. Is it about an individual or is it about a group? Those whom God foreknew. This is a either a group or a person that he loved beforehand. 
he also predestined, that means to determine beforehand, to become what? Conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Here's how I, I read this passage, and you're free to read it differently. This is not, this distinction and this difference between how we walk away from this does not determine whether or not we fellowship with one another. Clear? Uh, when I was coming, I'm moving down from Denver to come here to uh, be a part of the Upper Room Frisco. When I thought about Frisco in this group, I didn't know any of the individuals in it. And maybe a couple. I knew Casey and Cheryl, and I knew uh, Eric and Megan, but for the most part, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know who was going to be in this community. But when I thought about this community, there was an affection in my heart, which is why my wife and I said yes to moving down here and doing this. There was a love in my heart at just the mere thought of what this community could become. Now, God, when he looks at his people, this group that he loved beforehand, he has a great affection in his heart. And in that affection, he starts making plans. And you know what he decides? Beforehand, he decides this, that this group is going to look just like his son, so that, that his son would be the firstborn amongst many brethren. In other words, his son would have a family that looks like him. Who's God's concern for? His son. It's his desire to build a family for his son. Now, question for you. When I thought about coming down to Frisco, did I determine who would be a part of this church and who wouldn't? Question for you. In this passage, is God determining who is going to be a part of the church? Who is going to be conformed into the image of his son? Is it an individual or is it a group? It'd be like this. Um, let's say I'm throwing a conference. And I'm inviting everybody to come to this conference. And I've predetermined, I've predestined that everybody who comes to this Christian conference gets a Jesus koozie. Now, did I predestine something? Yeah, I determined something beforehand, right? Now, did I determine who got the Jesus koozie? Who's making those decisions? The individuals deciding to sign up for the conference. In the same way, who gets to look like the Son of God? Who gets to be conformed into His image? Those who believe by grace through faith. It's as simple as that. They believe and they get this as a result. It's not determining who goes, who gets heaven and who gets hell. It's determining of what these people get who believe. And what they get is an opportunity to be conformed into Christ. Next verse. And these whom he predestined, he also called. How many of you uh, believe you have a calling on your life? Guess what? The, the garden was the beginning of mankind's calling. Them being made in the image of God meant that they were to represent God on this earth. Show this world what, what God looks like. Mankind 
would be the closest thing the earth sees to, to God because man would represent God here on this place. So guess what? Those who believe get to pick that calling up again to represent God here on the earth. And those whom he called, he also justified. That means he's acquitted you. You no longer bear the shame and guilt of your sin. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And this means we get to partake and share in the divine nature of Christ. There's a measure of glory that God shares with this group of people. Clear on this? I told you we're diving in, right? I make no apologies. Next verse. So what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Next He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also freely give us all things? I love that passage. It's the best news that we've got. Keep going. It says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Now, when you see the word elect, it just simply means this, chosen for a purpose. Chosen for a particular calling. Chosen to fulfill a divine purpose from God. Now, I, th this plays into a bigger question, and, and it's this. Um, there are a lot of plans that God has. I'll just give you three different plans in case in point here. God has a plan for us as individuals, right? How many of you agree with that, that God has a plan for your life? And I would agree with you too. Uh, God has a plan for entire nations. For instance, we, we know about Israel. We've already discussed them. God's plan for that nation was to, to, to use them as a light for the entire world, to, to show them what it looked like when God was, show all of the world what it looked like when God was ruling over, over mankind again, and to birth the Messiah and bring about salvation for the entire earth. He was going to use this one nation to do all of these things. That was his plan for that nation. And then God's also got his own plans that, that he himself is going to sovereignly do. For instance, do you know one thing God's planned on already? Jesus is returning. Anybody going to stop that? Now, so my question for you is, in the midst of this, how much say-so do we have in God's plans? Well, God's plan to have Jesus return. Do we have any say-so in that? No, probably not. I mean, how, how many of us really want him not to do that, right? Oh, please don't send your son back. We don't have any say-so in that. How many of you know firsthand that you have say-so in God's plan in your life? Because how many of us know what it's like when we were not walking out any sort of good plan that he had for our life? All of us know that. And I'm telling you, the same thing is true for an entire nation, as, we, as I showed you last week. Remember Israel? That passage in Jeremiah where it says, uh, Israel, I, I had chosen you out of every other nation of the earth. You were going to be my bride, and instead you cheated on me, and you acted as though you were a prostitute. And even after that, God is still showing mercy, thinking to himself, maybe after she fulfills all of her sin and all of her desires, she'll see how flawed her plan was for herself and she'll come back to me and my, my plan for her. And then we see God's aching when Israel doesn't do that. And she continues on in her own way rather than in God's way. 
You see, we have a great deal of say-so. God is not meticulously controlling everything that's happening. He gives us a large amount of freedom in the midst of all of that to make our own way. Um, keep going here. It says, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Keep going. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And, and this, is, this is where it comes back to all the pain we've experienced. You see, those of us who have believed upon Jesus, we've got this holy calling now. We're going to be looking just like the Son of God. And, and here's why. We've literally done these things. We've decided we're dying to this world and all its passions, and we're giving ourselves over to a spirit-filled life, a life subject to the spirit, which really is how we come free from the dominion of sin. It's life in the spirit. Walk by the spirit. You do not fill the desires of the flesh. It says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, none of those things will separate us. Why? Because we've died. What can, anything, what can anybody steal from us? Think about this. Can anything be stolen from you? If Jesus has already, if God has given up his son, how will he not also freely give us all things? Do you get my point here? Like, look, everything in this world we no longer need. We're giving up this life, like this life. I'm talking about this, this hundred years that you may have on this earth. You care not for this one. You care for the one to come to the point where you're willing to lay this one down. You've died to this world, its passions. Nobody can now steal anything from us. So when tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, when those things come, can it separate us from the love of Christ? Because even in the midst of that, God can raise the dead. I think of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They go into the fire, and, and here's the promise they make. Uh, they, they, they have no fear about doing this, and they will not renounce their God. Why? Because they know that even if they die, God can raise the dead. But even in the midst of that, they feel fairly certain that they will live through this fire. See, their hope is not in this life or anything this life has to offer. It's in Jesus. So keep, man, we're barely just diving in. All right, we're going to start cooking through this now. Go to the next passage, yeah. Uh, so just as it's written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And that's us today. That's us right now. We're a sheep to be slaughtered. We don't care about the passions of this world. We're living for something else. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now, for I am convinced, keep going, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, uh, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a great passage. Okay, Romans 9, here we go. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies within me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Now, this is Paul talking, right? Now, he's about to give us his explanation for why he's experiencing the sorrow he has in his heart. 
I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. Who are his brethren? Jews, an entire nation. Again, I'm asking the question, is it talking about an individual or is it talking about a nation? Now, Paul is looking at this. He's going, uh, the Gentiles are receiving righteousness. The Jews are not. Why? Because the Gentiles are receiving the righteousness that comes through faith. Whereas the Jews were putting all of their stock in their ethnicity and their obedience to the law. Both things which are guaranteed to fail. So how are the, the Gentiles coming in? Now Paul's thinking of this and he's, he's, he's heartbroken because the Jews are his brothers. Paul is a Jew. And he's thinking, I wish that I myself were cursed on their behalf if only they would get the righteousness that came through them. Righteousness was birthed through the Messiah that came through the Jewish nation of Israel. Salvation came through that nation. It says, uh, go back to Romans 3, leave a minute. For I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. Next passage. But it is not as though the word of God failed. Now this is the big question. Did God's covenant with Israel, did it fail? You see, this group of people, they were the ones chosen to represent God on the earth. They were the one who, they were gonna be the covenant people of God. God entered into a relationship with this one nation. And now all of them are failing to receive righteousness. They're the, 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 the group that the righteousness was meant for, but instead of them receiving it, it's being given to another group. And so, so Paul is asking this question that he's asking on behalf of all the Jews, the question they're all asking. Now, now this isn't when Paul, the, the people who are asking this question are believing Jews. And they're thinking to themselves, why is it that none of the other, none of my brethren are receiving righteousness? Why? Did God's promise fail? Did his covenant fail? He says, listen, for not all who are Israel not all are the true Israel who are descended from Israel. What does that mean, Paul? Nor are they children because they are Abraham's descendants. You see that ethnicity thing? He says, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Now here, question for you. Is this again about salvation or about a vocation? Who gets to be a part of this chosen people group? Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. So he, he, he bring, keep going, let me just use both of these. That is, it is not the children of the flesh or the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Next verse. For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Keep going. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, also. When she was conceived, twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice, again, election, choice, choice to do or fulfill a specific calling, would stand, not because of works, because of, but because of him who calls. Uh, it was, let, me, let me just back up because this is already confusing. How many of you are like, I'm lost again? All right. I told you this is a tough 
thing. I bit off more than I can chew. Okay. He's, you've got these believing Jews asking the question, um, did God's promise fail? And Paul's saying, listen, his promise never failed. It's not every single Israelite that was actually the child of God. Not every Israelite is the true Israel. It was never based on their ethnicity. The calling would be fulfilled not by all of Israel, but by those who actually believed. Do you get my point? Let me, let me ask you a question. Is every Jewish person today going to heaven? No, right? Who goes to heaven? Those who believe. And really, it's not even about going to heaven. It's about salvation here and now, but, but I digress. You get my point. Okay, he, he's making the same point here. It's, it's not because that they're Jews that they're, they're, they're getting in. It's because that they believed. That's the reason. And so when he's looking at the, the who gets to fulfill the calling to be God's chosen people, to fulfill his, his purposes on the earth, who gets to be a part of that? Those who believe. And in this case, it's being handed over to the Gentiles because the Jewish people didn't believe. They rejected their own Messiah. And so he's looking at going, look, this, this shouldn't surprise you. Think about uh, Isaac and Ishmael, right? Abraham has two sons, Ishmael, who was born out of his covenant of marriage, and, and Isaac, who was the son of the promise. Now, did, did, is he talking about salvation? Does that mean Isaac would get salvation and Ishmael would be condemned to hell? No. Again, this has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with a vocation. So in this case, Isaac is getting the vocation, not Ishmael. It has nothing to do with either of their salvations. So then we fast forward. Go down to uh, verse 12. It says, it was said the older will serve the younger. So now he's talking about Jacob and Esau. Same exact example. Or sorry, another example of the same exact thing. Next verse. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now here's the interesting thing. Why is he using Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Ishmael? Why these two examples? Well, because out of uh, Ishmael and Isaac, you have Isaac who creates the Jewish nation and Ishmael who creates the Moabites. Individuals or nations? Then you fast forward to Jacob and Esau. Out of Esau would continue the line of the Israelites. Out of ja sorry, out of Jacob would continue the line of the Israelites, but out of Esau would be created. Anybody know this one? Huh? You just throw in an ITE at the end of a word and you're like, oh, I think I got it, right? The Edomites. Again, which, which nation is going to fulfill God's calling? The, the uh, Israel, Israelites or the Moabites? Later on, the Israelites or the Edomites? Now, this is typical hyperbole. Does this mean that Jacob I loved? In other words, Jacob's going to inherit eternal life. Esau is going to be condemned to hell. No, this has nothing to do with their faith. Again, it's about a calling. And God is going to fulfill his plan in either people group. So Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. This is also a typical Hebraic hyperbole, which hyperbole simply means this. It means an extreme statement to prove a point. We use hyperbole all the time in music. Think about it this way. When someone writes a song about a breakup, a relationship that ended, do they say, oh, we parted ways? Is that the way you hear the song sung? No, it's like she tore out my bleepity bleeping heart, right? Now, now, did she literally tear out that person's heart? 
Are we, are we meant to take it literally? Like in this case, I love uh, Jacob, but Esau, I can't stand. I'm condemning that guy to hell. Is that what that means? No, no, it's not meant to be taken literally. It's meant to, to a, an extreme statement to make a point. She tore out my bleeping heart because that's what it feels like. It feels horrible. And I want to jar you with my language to make a point. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, again, th- this has to do, God is going to fulfill his plans on the earth regardless of the choices of the Edomites, regardless of the choices of the Israelites. He's still choosing who he wants to fulfill this calling. And again, this is not, nothing to do with inheriting salvation. So we continue. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on who I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. Is that what that says? But on God who has, uh, I think that's a misprint. Well, it doesn't matter. But on God who has mercy, the next, next verse is where it gets important. For the scripture says, says about Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed on the whole earth. Stop for a second. Okay, why is he now bringing up Pharaoh and Moses? Okay, all of Israel is, is now, they're slaves in Egypt. God's plan is to deliver them out of slavery, right? So God has Moses go to Pharaoh and, Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. What did Pharaoh do? He rejected God's plan. Catching this? Pharaoh, and if you go back and you read this in Exodus, it'll say these words, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Hardened his own heart against God. So you know what God says? Okay, I can still use Pharaoh. I'll harden Pharaoh's heart even further. And then on top of that, I'll show my superiority as God of, the, of Israel and, and my superior as God of Israel over the gods of the Egyptians. You see, God is still accomplishing his plan despite Pharaoh's definite say-so. Pharaoh could have let them go. He chose not to. So God is still using Pharaoh to accomplish his purpose. Again, do you see how this has nothing to do with salvation? Okay, keep going. So then he says, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Like Pharaoh, he hardened him further. So this is the question, right? This has to do with the people of Israel. Why aren't they getting righteousness? Why aren't they getting to fulfill the calling? Why is the calling being handed over all these non-Jewish people? Because Israel hardened their heart against God. They started worshiping other gods. They rejected their Messiah. So you know what? God is still going to use Israel. His covenant with them never failed. He's still going to accomplish his purpose in them. Let me keep reading. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Keep going. Or does the, the, not the potter have a right over the clay to make some Make the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. Now, this is the big, like, passage, the big crutch here. Uh, And what we've done with this is we said, who are you to say to God what he's allowed to do? Now, from the controlling view, it sounds like the potter gets to do whatever the heck he wants, and you're not allowed to question the potter. 
Well, here's the thing. Paul, remember, this is about Israel, a group that's already chosen to reject God's purpose for them. Israel as a nation has rejected God's purpose for them. Now, this is a direct reference to a passage out of Jeremiah where he talks about the potter and the clay. So you're never going to understand this passage if you don't first go back to Jeremiah and read it. So skip over. Let's go Jeremiah 18. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there you will announce my words, there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on a wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled. In other words, it didn't go the way he intended. Like Israel. It was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. So despite it not going the way he wanted, he can still do what he wants with it. Uh, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot it, to pull down or destroy it. And if that nation against which I have spoken, remember, he's got a purpose to destroy this nation. But if this nation, which I've spoken, turns out, turns from its evil and repents concerning the calamity I plan to bring upon it, or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. You see, God had a purpose for Israel. They chose to reject God's purpose. And so he chose to use them anyway, but for something different. See, their rejection of the Messiah, do you know what that resulted in? How many of you are not Jewish in this room? Okay, all of you, keep your hand up. I've got good news for you. God has now chosen to fulfill his purposes on the earth through you. Isn't that kind of cool? You see, they rejected. So guess what? He gave the calling to somebody else. Now, now here's the thing. Like the potter and the clay. Listen, if, if Israel would repent, then God would rebring them into the purposes that he has for them. That's the whole point of this, is that God, you have a great deal of say-so in how God is going to fulfill his plans on the earth. And it's all dependent upon whether or not you will believe and place your trust in him. Same thing is true for Israel. This isn't meant to say that God is arbitrarily throwing Jacob into heaven and throwing Esau into hell. This isn't God arbitrarily saying, well, I'm giving up on Israel. I'm just going to throw her away and I'm going to start with the Gentiles. It's not God being arbitrary in any sense. It's him being incredibly intentional saying, I will use anybody who's willing to give their life to me. It's the omni-resourcefulness of God. I know this is taking me a long way to get here, but that is what this passage is teaching. All right, let's keep reading. Or does not the potter, yeah, you're back here. Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use? Now, that was his intention, to use Israel for honorable Instead, it didn't go out as he planned, and so now he's having to use it for common. 
What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Which isn't that exactly what he's done? Hasn't he endured with great patience the rebellion of Israel? When you go back, go back and listen to last week's sermon. Read through that passage in Jeremiah where it talks about even after she sinned, even after this nation has cheated on God, he's still willing to give her her, his purpose for their, uh, for their lives. Keep going. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not only from among the Jews, but also from those who were not Jewish. And he says this also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people and her who is not my beloved, beloved and it shall be in that in th- it shall be that in the place where it was said to them you are not my people there they shall be called sons of the living God Isaiah cries out concerning Israel though the number of the sons of Israel be like sand of the sea it is only the remnant that will be saved for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly and just as Isaiah foretold unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom, we would have, have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained it, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel pursuing a law did not arrive. Keep going. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling block. You see, the stumbling block for Israel was that they were entrusted with the greatest thing the earth had been entrusted with at that time, which was God's law. It was a tutor to point people towards their need for Messiah. But that thing that they were entrusted with became the greatest hindrance for them actually obtaining righteousness. It says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. You get that again. It's all about belief. Um, in, in Romans 11, Paul is going to make this even, uh, it, it, and it's, it's going to show God's goodness in the midst of all of this. He's continually responsing to what mankind chooses. To use mankind for noble purposes when they believe and to use them for not so noble purposes when they don't. But he's always willing to use any of us for noble purposes if we would give our lives to him. So in Romans 11, Paul says, look, the Gentiles rejected the Messiah. But think of it this way. If their rejection, now we know about God, right? I said this last week, that even after God's been rejected, instead he gets rejected by his own people, his nation of Israel, And instead of giving up on love and protecting himself in an invulnerable box, he opens his heart up to the rest of the world. You see, when we get rejected, we do the opposite. We close off and we shut ourselves off for the potential to love. But when God gets rejected, it's just like that wedding feast. He goes and finds everybody else who's willing to accept him. The wedding feast is there was a group of people that were meant to come to this wedding and they all had their own excuse for why they couldn't be there. And so you know what he does? 
He goes and finds all the people on the streets, anybody willing to come, and he gives them the feast. Uh, he says, if, if the rejection of God by Israel resulted in salvation for the Gentiles, how much more will acceptance from Israel be but a life from the dead for the rest of the world? See, Israel today has rejected their Messiah and it resulted in everybody else in this room getting salvation. But if Israel believes in the Messiah, that means all of our lost loved ones are raised from the dead. Do you not see how it doesn't matter what we throw at God, he still brings blessing out of it? Out of the rejection of Israel, remember I said God can sovereignly work, he can redeem it so much so that you'll go, he had to have caused this. He had to have. You see, the rejection of his people resulted in salvation for the world. Now, look at this. He's going to bless it even further. If Israel would accept him, then we get resurrection from the dead. See, he's better than we think he is. His ways are not our ways. Do you know how? Because we would have never thought of it. None of us were smart enough to think of that kind of amazing plan. Again, our nature is so the opposite. We get hurt. We block ourselves off so as to never get hurt again. God gets hurt. He opens his heart up even wider, invites more people in. Then when he gets accepted, the day he finally gets accepted, he decides, all right, let's just bless everybody now. See, it doesn't matter what happens to him. It results in something else that's really good. That's what this entire passage is supposed to be teaching us. At the end of the day, it shows that God is supremely good. He's better than you think he is. Uh, I'm sure half of you got lost. I encourage you to go back and listen to this all over again. You're going to hate me for it, but I'm telling you to do it again because I want you here. Look, why does this stuff matter to me? Why am I, why am I going through the most like arduous passage of scripture? Like, why does this matter? Because I want you to trust God. I want you to see that it doesn't matter what gets thrown at you in this life. I told you uh, last week, I, I, I woke up at 3 a.m. about two weeks ago to my wife bleeding out in our bathroom and passed out on the bathroom floor. And in the midst of that, I never thought to question God's goodness. Because I know he's good. I knew even then that if I lost my wife, God could do something amazing out of it. Because I've seen how resourceful he is. I'm not sitting there questioning God's goodness in the midst of it. I'm looking at this trial going, I'm dead to this life. It doesn't matter what happens. Take my wife. Take anything you have. Anything you throw at me, God can redeem. See, it's, it's that kind of confidence in God that allows me to stand steadfast. I've seen his goodness. And that's what this scripture is teaching. He's so, so good. Now, unfortunately, none of that stuff happened. But even though that happened, look what I'm doing with it. I'm using it as a personal testimony to show you the goodness of God. The enemy threw something at my family, and I'm saying, you're going to pay for that. <laughs> ah. All right. Look at me. I, I, I'm, I, yeah, I'm fired up, but it, I, it's so like, this is like life-giving stuff right here. I'm just, I don't know your stories, but I know that if you're in this life, you have one common thing that I've shared with you, and it's called trials. 
in this life, you will have one of the worst promises of God I've ever read. But I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what's come against you. It can be redeemed. And I'm not just talking about the next life. He didn't start his redemption waiting for resurrection. He started it right here and now. You got a diseased family member? Someone get the death sentence of cancer? I'm not telling you to wait for resurrection. I'm telling you to pursue resurrection life now. And regardless of what happens, what that cancer results in, either way, there's life from the dead. Um, I, I, again, I just another testament. I, I keep hearing these stories. They're just amazing to me. People get these, these just life-threatening sentences on their life. And I just think, but God. He's so good at redemption. God's redemption is so complete. One could be deceived into thinking that he caused that problem to begin with. But that person would be deceived. He didn't cause it. He's the one working good out of it. All right, stand up. Lift up your trial to Jesus. Whatever it is, if it's sin you haven't overcome, if it's a life-threatening illness, if it's a relational conflict, give that to Jesus right now. And this, all you have to do is one thing. You're dying to it. You're handing it off to him. You're saying, I can't do anything about this. It's yours. God, we give you our pain. We give you our, 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 our both physical and emotional pain. Everything, every trial that's in our life, we give it to you. We just acknowledge that we are powerless, powerless against the things of this world, the things that have come against us, but we know that you have power to overcome all of it and that you have power to overcome all of it in us. And we commit ourselves not to trying to overcome our own sin. We commit ourselves to living by your Spirit. Holy Spirit, we embrace you. We ask that you would come in and fill every part of our lives we want to hear you. We want to do what you say. We want to give our lives completely over to you. We want to live a completely spirit-filled, spirit-guided life. Everything that you have for us. We just say yes and amen.